is the Homestead Journey Podcast, the podcast dedicated to the pursuit of self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and sustainability. This is episode number 77 of the Homestead Journey Podcast. Welcome, 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 everyone. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us here on the Homestead Journey. My name is Brian Wells. I am coming to you from 3B Farm and Homestead here in beautiful upstate New York. And as I record this podcast, it is Easter Sunday. And so for those of you who are believers, happy Easter. He is risen. This is the big celebration, uh, kind of the pinnacle of Christendom, the fact that Christ is risen and the tomb is empty. And so if you are a fellow believer, um, we celebrate together uh, that fact. This week uh, is one of those weeks that not only is it Easter week, but it is also kind of one of those weeks where a couple of events happened that kind of just, there are those markers that I look forward to every year that kind of help me transition from one season to another. And so let's jump on into this Homestead Happenings, and I'll share with you a little bit about those markers that I'm talking about. So as I said this week, there are a couple of markers that took place that again are those things that helped me transition from season to season. The first one was opening day of baseball. I am a huge Cincinnati Reds fan. And while our first game didn't go as we had hoped, they did finish out the weekend very, very strong. And so that's always exciting. To me, there's just something about the rhythm of a baseball game that I just love to listen to while I'm out doing chores, while I'm out working in the garden. Uh, it's just something that is, to me, it's the soundtrack of summer. And so it's just exciting to me when opening day hits. It just reminds me that sunnier and warmer days are ahead. This week also, as I said, was Easter and Good Friday. Well, my, my dad always tries to get his peas planted on Good Friday. It doesn't matter when Good Friday falls. My dad tries to get his peas planted. In fact, a couple of years ago, I believe there was still snow and ice in his garden, and he still went out and planted his peas. Now, we did get together today for Easter lunch, and my dad told me that he failed this year. And that is... He did not get his peas planted until yesterday, but he did get his peas planted this week. I didn't. I'm hoping to do that next week. Um, but anyhow, just those markers again that helped me transition from season to season. Now, this week was a little bit colder on the homestead than it has been. We did have to deal with some of those frozen waterers uh, throughout the week, but uh, it's going to warm up. And again, Baseball reminds me of that, and so we'll look forward to warmer days that lie ahead. A bit of an animal update for you. We are down to seven piglets. I don't remember last on last week's episode if I had told you we had eight piglets or not. We did lose one of the piglets, so we are down to seven piglets, but 
the rest of them just seem to be very, very happy and healthy and energetic. And so hopefully things will continue to progress well with them. Um, and hopefully my other Sal Basil will Pharaoh probably towards the end of this month into the first part of May as my guess, but we'll see. We did also lose a couple of our standard breed chicks this week. Um, not sure what took place there. It, it, sometimes it just happens, but our turkeys and our meat birds are doing well. We have not lost a single one of those. Knock, knock on wood. Um, the cats seem to be settling in. Okay. We're keeping them caged up. Initially, I was thinking maybe one to two weeks, but I've read where some people recommend that you keep them caged up for about a month. So I think I'm going to go ahead and do that, but they do seem to be settling in. Okay. Um, definitely not any warm, fuzzy feelings between me and Sonny and Blackie just seems to hide behind Sonny. Although Blackie was very friendly, uh, and Bonnie's aunt and uncle said that they could pet uh, Blackie, but right now Blackie seems to be hiding behind Sonny. And so we'll see how they progress, but they seem to be settling in very well. This week, we also had the state vet tech come do our full flock, our full flock test, say that five times fast, our full flock test uh, against pelorum and avian influenza. Um, they come and do that once a year for us, and that helps us achieve our NPIP certification. They also, at the same time, will do a check of our herd uh, for swine because we also are registered with a premise ID um, so that we can transport uh, animals between states. And so they do the herd check at the same time. And so that all took place this week. Uh, and so very thankful to have that done. This week, I also got a lot more seeds started. I posted on Instagram and Facebook a picture of what I am calling the tray of death. It is a tray filled with some of the hottest peppers known to mankind. So scorpions and ghost peppers, and I don't even know what all is in there. I used gloves when I was planting those just to be on the safe side, but the tray of death is in the seed starting system. I also started a few more sweet peppers and hot peppers, more of the mild peppers this week, just because I had some poor germination in my original uh, seed starting trays. Although today I looked and it looks like some of the ones that I thought hadn't sprouted were just slow to sprout. So maybe I'll have extra peppers on hand and then I can give them away or sell them. Um, but uh, better to have too many than not enough. I also started my brassicas this week. So some kale and collards and cabbage and Brussels sprouts in both wind strip trays and in uh, some soil blocks. And I will be starting some more of those for my dad this week. Um, and then we'll be getting some herbs started and some flowers started. And we are already starting to harden off some of the things that we got started. So our onions, I started hardening them off yesterday. And so hopefully by the end of the week, they'll be out of the way. And that will open up some more room in the seed starting system for the rest of the stuff that I am trying to get started. My brother-in-law came to visit this weekend, and so I went ahead and put him to work on the homestead. <laughs> I mean, got great free labor here. Why not? I had the easiest time ever shoveling out our chicken coop. So we use the deep litter method. We clean it out about once a year in the spring. And so this weekend was that weekend. And so my brother-in-law 
and my son shoveled the stuff out into the bucket of the tractor. I drove the tractor and dumped it and then came back for another load. So it was the easiest time I've ever had doing that. So thank you so much, Al. Al is the um, owner of Creek Road Pottery. In fact, I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying coffee from a Creek Road Pottery mug that he dropped off this weekend that says the Homestead Journey on it. And uh, this was actually a mug that was involved in the giveaway from a couple of months ago. He made a few extras. So I'm enjoying some coffee here from this mug, but it was great to see Al. We also did something that has been about five years in the works, and that is I bought a gorilla cart. Now, I don't really think it's a gorilla cart. I think it's a knockoff of a gorilla cart, but I think it was about five years ago, maybe four years ago at a yard sale. And I got it for cheap, like maybe 30 bucks, knowing that one of the wheels was destroyed and needed to be swapped out. But I've always had a hard time getting that wheel off. I never was able to get it off. And so this weekend, I was determined that we were going to get that wheel off and I was going to get it replaced. And so along with Al's help and um, a sledgehammer and, well, it just wasn't pretty. But what we found is that the inner race of the bearing was actually rusted to the shaft. And so we were able to beat the wheel off and then I had to take a grinder and kind of cut that off. Long story short, we now have four wheels on that cart. And so hopefully that will make our lives a little bit easier here on the homestead, transporting things around. Finally, today we enjoyed another awesome homestead meal here on 3B Farm and Homestead, we had a half of a turkey, one of the turkeys that we raised last year. And then we also had some corn that we had put up and we enjoyed some green beans from my mom and dad's homestead. And folks, again, it is just so satisfying to sit down and enjoy a meal where so much of the food on your plate, you had a direct hand in raising, growing, preserving. It's just so satisfying, folks. And so we were able to enjoy that today. I hope this episode finds you well wherever you are at. Before we head on over to this week's Charting the Course, if you are interested in supporting the show, you can do so in a number of different ways. First of all, if you haven't already, could you jump on over to iTunes or wherever you consume your podcasts and leave me a review or a rating? I would greatly appreciate it. You can also support the show by sharing it with your friends. Some of you have let me know that you've been doing that, and thank you so much. I greatly appreciate it. Finally, if you'd like to support the show financially, you can head on over to our website, thehomesteadjourney.net slash shop. And there you will find links to our t-shirt shop with our fabulous designs, as well as links to uh, some great homestead gear and some great homestead books. These are things that we not only use here on our homestead, but they're things that we think you might find helpful on your journey towards self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and sustainability. So check those out. If you buy through those links, a portion of that does come back and help support the show, and I greatly appreciate it. One final thing. I let you know last week that we've got something exciting coming up, and so definitely mark off the week of April 26th. Right now, that's when I'm planning to launch the five-day challenge that I was telling you about last week. Hopefully this week, I will be putting out a bonus episode announcing how you can sign up for that. But 
If you want to be one of the first to be able to sign up, send me an email, brian at thehomesteadjourney.net, and I will make sure you are one of the first to know the moment that goes live and you're going to have the opportunity to sign up for it. Uh, Several of you have contacted me this week. And so if you are interested in getting started and you think that you can't, because you don't have enough land or you don't have enough resources. Five days homesteading challenge that is going to be taking place. I believe it will be April 26, 2021. And so reach out to me, Brian, at thehomesteadjourney.net to be the first one to know. All right, let's jump on over to this week's Charting the Course. On this week's Charting the Course, I am very, very excited to be joined by a guest. And that guest is none other than farmer Greg Peterson from theurbanfarm.org, as well as host of the Urban Farm podcast. Now, Greg is a green living and sustainability innovator whose mission is to inspire people to embrace their own greenness which he does daily by living what he speaks. As a resident of Phoenix for the last 48 years, Greg is well-versed in urban sustainability and food production in dry lands. He was first introduced to desert gardening at the age of 12, and in 1991, he discovered the concept of permaculture, bringing together many sustainability concepts into one cohesive system. Then in 2001, Greg created a new concept called The Urban Farm, a real-world environmental showcase home in the heart of Phoenix, Arizona. He applied his extensive background to transform this 1950s-built tract home into an innovative, holistic home site. The Urban Farm, featuring an entirely edible landscape, including over 70 fruit trees, rainwater and gray water harvesting, three solar applications, and extensive use of reclaimed and recycled building materials. Greg has hosted the Urban Farm podcast since 2015 and has produced almost 600 episodes interviewing farmers, authors, business leaders, advocates, and change makers in sustainable living practices and urban farming. Guests have included people like Jason Mraz, Joel Salatin, and David Holmgren, to name just a few. When I was talking to Greg and his team about coming on the show, there were so many topics that I wanted to discuss with him, but today's show will be focused on permaculture and food forests. So with all of that said, Greg, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. I love talking about permaculture and regenerative design and growing your own food. Excellent. Excellent. As, as you and I were just chatting a little bit ago, I feel like you and I are to a certain extent, maybe brothers from another mother. We have a shared passion for people raising and growing food, regardless of the size of space that they have. Exactly. Uh, You know, and I, I shared with this, this with you a little while ago, the simplest thing to grow and the most expensive thing to buy is herbs. And you can do that in a sunny windowsill uh, on a, you know, in a pot on your porch. So jump in. And here's the other thing I like to tell people, and that is that you're going to kill something. Not on purpose, but just get over that now. It's okay. 
Right. You know what not to do next time, right? Exactly. Absolutely. So before we get into this too much, um, you are in a place that I don't think many people would associate with, with agriculture in general. Um, mm-hmm. You're in Phoenix, which is desert city, not mm-hmm. exactly what many people would consider to be prime real estate for growing food. And yet there you are. How'd you get there? Oh, wow. Well, how many decades do you want to go back? Literally. Uh, In the eighth grade, I wrote a paper on how we were overfishing the oceans. That was 1974. In 1981, I was designing what we would now call a regenerative fish farm. Uh, I've many times been told that I was way ahead of my time. And because it just, it doesn't, our food system just doesn't make sense to me. It just doesn't make sense. There's an easier way. You don't have to grow things in Peru and ship them to the U.S. Uh, 75% of the groceries that we buy in the grocery store, the fresh groceries that we buy in the grocery store, come from another country. Mm -hmm. And most of them, you know, we can't grow really grow mangoes and tropical stuff here in the United States, but you can grow peppers and tomatoes and that kind of stuff. So I've been watching this for a very long time. And what makes sense to me is having a yard where everything is edible or it supports edible. And that's what I've done over the past 32 years living here at the urban farm. The urban farm is my home. It's right in the middle of Phoenix. If you stood on my roof, and looked 50 miles in each direction, you'd see houses if you could see that far. And I actually live in a peculiar place in that it's an old citrus orchard. In fact, I have two citrus trees from my in my backyard that were planted in the 1920s. So they're approaching wow. 100 years old at this point. Yeah. And they wow. still make fruit every year. Wow. And we're on something that's, it's a water right that comes with the land. It's called flood irrigation. And it costs me $140 a year for six inches of water in my yard 20 times. And what I, there's over 33,000 acres of flood irrigated property in the Phoenix metropolitan area. And most people grow grass. Mm, mm. So First and foremost, I'm on a mission to get people planting fruit trees in their flood irrigated yards. You know, and we could do thousands of those. Secondly, I'm on a mission to teach people that, yes, you can grow things in the desert without flood irrigation. Mm-hmm. And there's very particular steps that you take to be able to do that. I planted my first garden in 1975. That's nice. what, 45 years ago? Wow. And here in the desert, and I have literally grown everything ex- successfully except ginger and rhubarb. Nice. Well, okay. There's a few more things. Avocados don't typically grow well, <laughs> real well here in some of the tropicals. But, you know, everything that most people would want, right? you can grow here if you know the rules. Mm-hmm. You know, it, you can grow things here. You can grow things in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. But when you come from Minnesota, there's rules in Minnesota and there's rules in Arizona and you just right. have to know what the rules are. Right. And that's what we, in, in a lot of our education, that's what we're doing is we're, we're pointing people toward the rules of what's going to work best for your area and, and pointing for them to look, to see how they can uh, figure out what those rules are so they can be successful growing food. Right. Right. Absolutely. That's, that's huge. And 
So many times, I mean, the internet is an awesome place. It's a great place for people to get great information, but <laughs> we, we've got to also apply the rules that apply locally. And exactly. what, what grows, you know, a variety that might grow well in Arizona may not do well in upstate New York. Right. And what grows well in upstate New York may not do well in, in Arizona. And so it's a matter of playing by the rules. Exactly. Especially, and I have a fruit tree, I'm pointing to my shirt. This is my fruit tree program logo on my shirt, especially with fruit trees. Mm-hmm. You know, the fruit trees that grow in New York aren't going to grow in Arizona. They'll grow. They won't make fruit right. in Phoenix, Arizona. And so there's, again, that's, you know, some of the rules that you just have to kind of decipher your way through. And that that's one of the things that I love about permaculture. Are you familiar with that word? I am. I am. But, you know, I it's one of those things that I've wanted to to understand more about. And mm-hmm. so there were so many topics that I really wanted to cover with you, but it's like, I've got to <laughs> pick one. I've got to pick one. And, and really permaculture, I, I feel like is, it's one of those words that to a certain extent freaks me out a little bit. Oh, uh, really? And, and I'll tell you why it, 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 I shouldn't say it freaks me out, but it just feels daunting. I think that's a better way to put it. And a big part of the reason why it feels daunting to me is because when I have looked into permaculture, you know, one of the first things you run across is the big black book Oh um, yes. <laughs> as, as a, as a, you know, a uh, homesteader, uh, you know, a small yep. scale guy. Whoa. Uh, the big black book just feels way out of my league. And then a number of people that I'm familiar with, and some of them are a bit controversial. We're not gonna, you know, I don't want to get into that too much. But some of the people that I'm, I'm more familiar with with regards to permaculture, mm-hmm. like Jeff Lawton and Paul Wheaton, and um, even um, Justin Rhodes with his permaculture chickens, they're doing things on a big scale. Yeah. And how you know? So I look at that and I say, can this ever apply to a? to a home gardener, to a small scale person. And, and the fact is you've made it work. How big is your property? Third of an acre, 80 feet wide, 160 feet deep. And yet on a third of an acre, you're implementing permaculture in a way that is producing abundance. And so I, I look at that and I say, okay, here's a guy that I want to learn permaculture from. You know, the Jeff, I'm not banging on and any, you know, these big scale guys, I'm not banging Mm -hmm. on the big black book, but on the other hand, that those principles may not adapt. I should say the principles, but their practices are not going to adapt well to my situation. And it kind of goes back to what we were talking about with regards to the fruit trees in upstate New York, maybe not working well in Arizona. So what's permaculture? Let's get there. (laughs) So Permaculture, I like to call the art and science of working with nature. And the first premise for me in permaculture is to stand back and observe. Permaculture is actually really simple. It's about watching nature to see how nature interacts in your space and then mimicking it. You can do that on 10,000 acres. You can do that on a south-facing 200-square-foot back patio. I know because... So I've lived at the urban farm for 32 years, minus one. And a funny story, mom used to call the urban farm where I live, my mistress, because every time, every time a girl would come into my life and, and we'd get serious, then I would say, okay, you got to come and live here. And, you know, with, with uh, the way women 
you know, nest and that kind of stuff. You can imagine how well that didn't work. <laughs> so, so in 2012, I actually rented out the urban farm to a friend of mine and I moved to a small place out in uh, about 20 miles west of here in Peoria, Arizona. And uh, we had a 200 square foot south facing back patio that I was practicing permaculture principles on. So it's very, very simple to uh, integrate it. So let me finish that story real quick. Um, I actually met my beloved Heidi uh, two weeks after I moved out of the urban farm. So I just had to get away from the space. And a year later, we moved back in here. So um, she's my lifetime partner. And yeah, she's She and I do great together, but I just had to kind of break up the energy here. But that, that 200 square foot back patio out in Peoria uh, was a great place to practice small principles. Now in permaculture, observation is number one, go out and pay attention. I tell people all the time to spend at least a year on your property before you make any major changes. Yes. Okay. And if you're if you're looking for a small place, say you're moving into an apartment with a balcony, one of the things from a permaculture perspective is if I was looking at renting or buying a place that only had a balcony, I would make sure in the northern hemisphere, I would make sure that the patio faced east mm-hmm. or south. And, and why is that? Explain why that is. I will. A northern facing patio isn't getting enough sun to grow anything. Mm-hmm. A western facing patio typically will cook. A western facing patio, unless you're, you know, maybe in Minnesota or upstate New York, uh, a western facing patio could do just fine. In the in the warmer climates, a western facing patio doesn't do really well. So. One of the things to observe for in your space is where does the sun travel across the sky and when? So I tell people all the time, get an idea. I tell people a lot of things all the time. (laughs) I just realized (laughs) I've said that multiple times today that set your smartphone. We all have smartphones, right? Set your smartphone for December 21st, for March 21st for June 21st and for September 21st. So that's the the, uh, solstices and the equinoxes. And on December 21st in the Northern Hemisphere, the sun's going to be at its lowest point in the sky at noon. That's a really good thing to know. On June 21st, it's going to be in its highest point at noon. Again, really good to know. Mm Mm-hmm. So tracking, and then on uh, March 21st and on uh, September 21st, it's halfway in between. So tracking where the sun's at is going to give you a lot of data on how to place your gardens. If you are in the desert, like I am, I would never put a spring, summer, or fall garden on a Western exposure. Western exposure gets sun from noon until sundown. It's the hottest part of my space. It's the hottest microclimate. Mm -hmm. So that's the next thing I'm going to have you start looking for is where are the cooler and warmer spaces on your property? And things like concrete, 
block walls, gravel will make spaces warmer. Grass, uh, trees, that kind of stuff will make spaces cooler. And you have them. You just need to go figure out where they are on your space and then work with them. I'll tell you what, placing a garden in a northern exposure, for the most part, is a failure. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not going to get enough sun there. So knowing where the sun's at every month of the year in the sky is going to help you a lot. So looking at those kinds of things, where's your water coming from? You get rain on an apartment just like you do on a condo, just like you do on a 2,000 square foot lot, just like you do on 40 acres, right? Absolutely. So what we do in permaculture is we look to see where our water's coming from when it rains and where it goes. I've done this for so long now that I can walk onto a piece of property and even if it's not rained in three or four months, which is typical here in Arizona, mm-hmm. and I can see where the water flows on a property just because, you know, sticks are pointed in the, you know, in a same direction. And, you know, there's flow patterns, uh, maybe uh, stains on concrete. You're looking mm-hmm. for those kinds of things. So these are all permaculture concepts that anybody can integrate. Mm-hmm. And the basic premise of permaculture is care for the earth care for the people, share the surplus. And what I've found over four decades of playing with gardening and three decades of learning permaculture, that is that in nature, when we let nature be in our space, it makes so much abundance. Mm -hmm. In fact, I tell people the only place that lack lives, not having enough, is right between our ears because when I look at my apple tree in my backyard, I'm going to get 300 pounds of apples off of one apple tree in my backyard. Wow. I'll get 200 pounds of peaches and apricots here in the next 90 days. Wow. And these are small trees that I've appropriately placed in my landscape mm-hmm. so that they, you know, they get afternoon shade, they're the right size. I basically looked at the natural systems around them and and placed them in the right place in my yard. Again, all of this is permaculture. So I, I was at a, a lecture. This had to have been 25 years ago. And this there was 40 or 50 people in the room, and I was starting to share about permaculture. This is back when I first learned about permaculture. And this guy sticks up his hand in the back, and he says, this is the desert. You can't do permaculture in the desert. And I probably said something like, well, does nature exist in the desert? Well, yeah, it does. Well, then we can follow those patterns. Because again, perma- and the, the big black book you talk about is, is a textbook for anybody that doesn't know. It's a textbook. So it's textbook size. It's 500 pages mm-hmm. on permaculture principles. Mm-hmm. You're right. It is daunting. Mm-hmm. And I would bet, I'm getting chills now as I share this, I would bet that I haven't spent more than two, in 31 years, of studying permaculture, I'll bet you I haven't spent more than two hours in that book. I have a copy. Mm-hmm. I have a copy that I bought mm-hmm. 31 years ago when I did my permaculture design course, but you're right. I use it for reference. Mm-hmm. If I need to know, you know, the permaculture chicken diagram, it's in there. If I need to know water swale development 
it's in there. So it's more rather than something to read, it's a reference book. Mm-hmm. A much simpler book to read is uh, Toby Hemingway's Gaia's Garden, uh-huh. top-selling permaculture book on the planet. He sold two or 300,000 copies of that. It's an amazing book for permaculture. And it's, you know, it's uh, 150 pages and half the size of a, you know, of a textbook. You know, and I'll make, I'll make sure to include a link to that book in the uh, show notes for anybody that's interested in that. Cool. Um, definitely yeah. check that out because it's uh, definitely a good resource. Yeah. Yeah. So, so permaculture is actually simple if we're just looking at the systems in our space and then rec- replicating them. So for somebody who is brand new to this concept, mm-hmm. um, you're saying start by observing what your, what your land does, mm-hmm. um, observe what nature is doing and, and then f- basically mimic it. And it's that, it's that simple. We maybe, right. maybe I've just made it too complicated in my head. It's that simple. It really is that simple. And so I'll, I will tell people, you know, spend a year on your property before you make any major changes. That doesn't mean don't plant a garden. That means don't cut down trees. Right. So a quick example of this, we call in permaculture, we call things like this class one errors. I'm in the desert. The front of my house faces east. The back of my house faces west. That means the house across the street from me, the front of their house faces west. We had new owners in the house about 10 years ago. And the first thing they did within 10 days of moving in, they were out there with, with chainsaws cutting down 80-year-old citrus trees that were 25, 30 feet tall that provided all of the shade for the western side of their house. Oh. They hadn't a flipping clue mm-hmm. the damage they were doing to their electric bill. Yep. And it took a good seven or eight years to even get something growing there again. Mm-hmm. So when I say don't do anything major on your yard in your space, that's what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I definitely that's a, a recommendation that I have made for for you know for a very long time as well. Um, you know, don't install any major infrastructure. Um, you know, if you can avoid it, because more than likely you're going to have to move it. <laughs> right. Well, and okay, good. So that's permaculture. In my opinion, that's permaculture. That is a permaculture concept of standing back, observing. Mm-hmm. What's going to work best in this space? Absolutely, you're already doing it, man. Yeah, well, like better, better lucky than good, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so one of the one of the concepts that I hear in uh, from people, I guess, with a permaculture background, and and I think to a certain extent, it's also become a little bit trendy to say, and so maybe it's lost a little bit of its meaning. But I hear a lot of people talking about food forests. That's something that I I kind of associate with permaculture. Is that a fair statement that it's kind of something that comes, I don't know, from permaculture? Um, And could you explain a little bit about what that is? Absolutely. Because I have a third of an acre food forest here that I've been developing over 32 years. doesn't have to take that long. I don't know whether the concept of food forest came from permaculture, although it's really strong in permaculture. Mm Mm-hmm. But basically what we're saying is when you're developing a food forest in your landscape, let nature be and develop different layers. Just like in a forest, there's big trees, there's small trees, there's shrubs, there's berries growing on the ground, there's climbing vines, there's um, 
mycorrhiza and soil life underneath the soil there. I just covered five layers of a food forest. Mm -hmm. And one of the big concepts that I love to do at my food forest is plant open pollinated seeds. Open pollinated seeds aren't hybrid. They're not GMOs. Mm -hmm. They're readily available. Although sometimes you might have to dig for them open pollinated or heirloom seeds. Basically what it means is that they're seeds that when you plant them, they'll pretty much make, so an Armenian cucumber, if you plant an Armenian cucumber seed, it's going to pretty much make an Armenian cucumber. Mm-hmm. And that may sound funny to some of your listeners. And when you plant hybrid seeds, so say you plant a seed out of a uh, hybrid watermelon. Mm-hmm. And it's mostly seedless, but you pull that seed out of there. A hybrid watermelon is a cross between watermelon A and watermelon B. Correct. And so when you pull that seed out of there and plant it, it may or may not make watermelons. Mm -hmm. And the genetics of it starts falling apart, so to speak. Hybrids aren't bad by any means. It's just... I'm glad you said that because my episode this week that I just released yesterday was uh-huh. on why I plant hybrids as well as heirlooms. So, whoo. yeah, oh. you, you know, well, and I, I actually do plant some hybrids and I, I, I did see that. I didn't have time to listen to it today, but I'm going to go listen to it because you got my curiosity up. The thing that I do with uh, heirloom or open pollinated seeds is I let them all go to seed. Mm-hmm. So, in my yard right now, I have garlic that came up from seed. I've got three different kinds of cabbage. I have cilantro. Mm -hmm. I have parsley. I have nasturtiums. I have cowpeas. um, I have carrots. These are all things that come back year after year because I let them go to seed and I just let the seeds spread in my yard. Mm -hmm. And that makes the vegetables makes a bottom layer of my food forest. Okay. And then I have a mid layer, which is some bushes. So I have different berry bushes. I've got a dwarf black mulberry bush that I grow in the yard and some Nanking cherries and different, those kinds of bushes. I have some fruit trees, which are another layer up. So the bushes are like two to three feet tall uh, the vegetables are underneath them. Uh, then, uh, then I have fruit trees that I mostly keep at seven to nine feet. And then I have several 30 to 50 foot trees here on the property that provide me with shade and provide me with lots and lots of leaves mm-hmm. for mulch in the fall Yes, and yes. wintertime, right? Yes. So thinking about a food forest, it's, it's, just plant a landscape that will take care of itself. Mm -hmm. And a big part of the way I do that is plant open pollinated seeds. So they go to seed and just keep regenerating themselves year after year. Mm -hmm. And this brings me to another concept of permaculture, which I know you do. I absolutely know you do. You've got chickens, right? Oh, absolutely. Okay. And tell me about your chickens in your yard. What do they do for you? Well, my chickens provide me with manure. My chickens eat bugs. My chickens give me eggs. My chickens give me meat. Um, I put my chickens to work, uh, weeding my garden, um, cleaning up my garden after, uh, you know, uh, the season is over. 
Right. Um, yeah, that actually was Justin Rhodes's permaculture chickens that got, that kind of got me onto that whole concept there of exactly. putting my animals to work. Right. Exactly. No more freeloaders. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Have a couple of feral cats to get rid of the rats. I, I just actually I just got those on Friday. So All there right. we go. <laughs> so in permaculture, we call that stacking functions. Mm-hmm. We have a, an asset called a chicken. Mm-hmm that's doing multiple things for you. Mm -hmm. Generally, an industrial chicken does one thing for you. It gives you meat or it gives you eggs, right? Yep. And a whole lot of manure that you have to get rid of somehow. Exactly. Exactly. Now, these these companies, and a buddy of mine here in Phoenix has, I don't know, 900,000 chickens, literally. Mm -hmm. They run a egg business here in town called Hickman's. And uh, a maybe 10 years ago, they started looking to see how they could develop it into a fertilizer. Mm-hmm. So they make, they, they developed their own brand of chicken fertilizer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. So the big guys are starting to think about this. This is an asset. What do we do with it? Right. In permaculture, whether you're on a 300 square foot patio or on 200 acres, we're looking for those assets and what they do and what we can do with what they do for us. Mm-hmm. That's Absolutely. permaculture. I ended up in school late in life. So I, long story short, in 1981, I had my first semester at Arizona State University, hated it with a passion. (laughs) Absolutely hated it with a passion. Flunked out. My my dad finally said to me, oh, you don't want to be in college, do you? I didn't. I was not interested in going that route. Fast forward to 1999. Uh, I let my mom convince me to go back to school. Well, when I got to Arizona State University the second time around, I actually had 127 credit hours because every time I was interested in learning something, I'd go to Phoenix College and I'd take a class mm-hmm. on wastewater management, writing a business plan, solar energy, right? I, I'm I'm fascinated with learning stuff. I just didn't want to do it their way. Mm-hmm. So I'm getting my bachelor's degree and I'm sitting in a, because I have an urban planning uh, minor. And I'm sitting in one of my transportation planning classes. And this guy starts talking. Now, I'd taken a permaculture class a decade earlier. This guy starts talking about trip stacking when you go driving. So today I had several errands to run. I just didn't go to the post office, then come home and the bank and come home, right? Mm -hmm. I went to the post office, the bank, the grocery store, and I came home. It's called trip stacking. That is a permaculture concept. Okay called stacking functions, how the asset in this case was my drive Uh and how many things could I do on that drive? So one of the things I highly encourage people to do is when you're looking at assets on your property, how many times can you use them before they exit your, your property? Mm -hmm. You know, I have this great ash tree. I mentioned it earlier. It's gotta be 60 feet tall and it, it dumps bushels and bushels of leaves every year. Mm-hmm. One asset. Second, huge asset for me. It's on the right. Cor- it's on the correct corner of my house that gives my ha- half of my house shade mm-hmm. in the afternoon in the summertime, cutting my electricity bill. Mm-hmm. So I have this tree that does at least two different things for me. Mm-hmm. Oh, another thing it does is it brings in birds, which poop heavily in that area. That poop ends up on the leaves that I rake up. And adds bird manure to my compost bins. Oh my gosh, how great is that? Yep. So, uh, you know, just another permaculture concept that 
it can be that can be done whether you're driving going to run some errands or whether you have a 200 square foot patio or whether you have 200 acres mm-hmm. you know so it, it's really just about observing nature and then mimic it mimicking it i'll get the word right and you bring up leaves a funny story so where we live to be honest with you when we bought this property i was not we were doing because i didn't i didn't necessarily associate um homesteading with with uh the term homesteading with what we had been doing for mm-hmm. us the way i grew up it was just living you you planted right. a garden you right you raised chickens i mean it was just it was just a part exactly. of the overall yep. know, function of, of of how you live when we bought this property um i honestly while i was doing some of that I was doing a lot of it at my grandfather's house, which is about a quarter of a, a, a mile down the road from me. He had a big mm-hmm. garden, he, you know, so I, we were keeping the chickens down there. And so this property, it's wooded on, you know, on many sides. Oh, it's, nice. um, I love it that you have many sides of your property, not right. just four. <laughs> right. Yes. It's, uh, but, but, but the thing about it is initially what frustrated me about that was all of the leaves because I'm like, I saw it as a problem. I didn't see it mm. as a solution. I didn't see those leaves as a resource. I saw them as a pain in the butt that I had to rake up every year and I was blowing them down into the woods and I'm wasting all of this time, you know, messing about with them. And then when I opened up my eyes to the fact that leaves are a resource, mm-hmm. now I go looking for leaves. Right. My aunt rakes up her leaves and I go and get them in my truck and I bring them home because I want the leaves. I mean, I use them. I use them in my pigs. I use them with my chickens. I use them in my garden. Uh, You you know what I'm saying? Like they are an awesome, an absolute awesome resource. But for years, I just saw them as a pain in the butt. Yeah. Right. It's kind of funny that you bring up leaves and it's like, you know, right there. And then you stop and you think about, as you were talking about observing nature and you go underneath the, you go into the forest and you see where the leaves have set and they've been breaking down and you scrape the leaf back and you see how rich that is underneath there. Exactly. You know, one of the things that drives me nuts, and I'm not a great big fan of lawns, but in, especially in Phoenix, this makes me crazy. People go in and dethatch their lawns. Mm-hmm. When they dethatch it, they pull out of all the organic matter out of their lawn and throw it away. And then go to the in- hardware store, buy mulch, buy planting mix, buy compost, put it on top. After mm-hmm. they just threw right, mm-hmm. just makes it just makes no sense to me. Yeah. Now I'm a, I'm somebody who I don't like lawns just because I hate to mow a lawn. Um, to I, me, I'm with you. Completely being on a lawnmower. You. Yeah that's that's the absolute biggest waste of of time um so yep, energy money oh, absolutely so much stuff so the more i can figure out how can i put a garden here so i don't have to mow it that yeah. just makes me oh i could put a fruit tree i don't have to mow that oh right. I, you know so to me you know some of this is just about the fact that i hate to mow lawn uh, <laughs> as much as it is about i love to grow food right um, well and, and in a food forest Ideally, what you want to do is you want to set it up so the only thing there is for you to do is to harvest food. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's possible. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely possible to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So just plant that seed. 
Well, that's, that's good stuff. That's good stuff. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so many, so many things here. I, uh, directions I want to go here. I, I'm trying to like woo, rabbit trail, rabbit trail, <laughs> rabbit trails. Not going to try to go down too many rabbit trails, but you were talking about the open pollinated seeds and allowing them to go to seed and, and kind of just um, uh, continue to, to, to grow up Perpetuate and, and themselves, continue yeah. to, to feed, feed you. Um, a, a couple of weeks ago, I was, um, talking to, uh, the, I'm a scoutmaster, my son's troop. And so awesome. one of the other parents, uh, he and I got to chatting and, and come to find out, it's just amazing how you, you don't realize how much you have in common with somebody until you sit down and you start chatting with them. And right. he is huge into raising and growing food. Um, after our conversation, he invited me over to his house, his canning kitchen and his all of that it's just nice uh, it's just amazing but one of the things he talked to talk to me about and i actually did an episode on it were perennial vegetables things like mm. skirt that have kind of fallen out of favor uh mm-hmm. because of you know the commercial you know we've commercialized carrots nothing against carrots but you know skirt was kind of like that original root vegetable and the thing is, he has these things that he was telling me about in abundance. And he's like, yeah, in the spring, I'll dig some up and give them to you. And I was like, nice. I am all about that. Yeah. Um, it, it, to me, you know, again, having things like that, that come back year after year after year uh, to be able to kind of invest that energy once. Exactly. And not have to last year i i put in rhubarb i'd been wanting to put in rhubarb for years mm-hmm. and in fact at one point i ordered rhubarb crowns and never got around to planting them and so last year i was like this is going to be the year and part of it was the pandemic i'm like wait a minute i've got to get serious about making sure that my family can eat if you know now can man live on rhubarb alone probably not um if you eat too much of it maybe you might get the scoops <laughs> right exactly <laughs> But at the end of the day, to have that as part of, you know, we, we put in berries. Um, I finally get around, you know, I, I'd always been talking about planting apple trees, just never mm-hmm. gotten around to it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my son, he's now 16. And um, so I was planting these apple trees and he said to me, uh, he was all excited. He said, dad, you finally are planting apple trees. And I said, yes. Nice. And I said, uh, he said, when are we going to get our first apples? And I said, oh, it'll probably be four or five years. And his face just fell. Mm. And he said, but dad, by then I'll be in college. If you would have listened to me 10 years ago and planted those trees when when I want, you know. So what do they say? You know, the the old adage is uh, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second best time to plant a tree is today. Right now. Um, And so anyhow, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, this idea, this concept of, um, planting those perennials and doing it in a way to where, you know, you, you can kind of, I don't necessarily want to say set it and forget it, but as close to set it and forget it as you can. Yeah, exactly. A food forest. That's what you want to do with your food forest is you mm-hmm. want to design it so that you can set it and forget it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have sweet potatoes, Jerusalem artichokes, asparagus. Uh, those, um, those are the three that come to mind real quickly that are in the ground that they just come back year after year after year. And I, you know, I'm a huge fan of fruit trees. We have a fruit tree education program specifically for the low desert. 
Mm-hmm. And um, we do, I'm going to guess, 300 hours of free classes a year on fruit trees, teaching people. And I've learned the the intricacies of making sure that fruit trees survive in the desert. And then we sell three to three to 5,000 of them every year. Wow. And nice. uh, yeah, it's actually what pays for my podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. Podcasts, podcasts aren't free. Not, no, not at all. And once I started doing them, uh, doing it is like, wow. In fact, I sat down and kind of figured it up. Uh, what I spent last year on the podcast. <laughs> Anyhow, we're not going to talk about that. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, you are one of the other things that you are very, very passionate about is seed saving. Oh, yeah. Um, that's that's just another thing. And and I, I don't want to get too far down that rabbit hole because I'm hoping that you will agree to come on again to speak specifically to the topic of Absolutely. seed saving. Yeah, we can um, do that. I, I listened to your episode. Uh, it was episode 583 with Greg Muller, I believe it was, where you were uh-huh. talking about um, he was, he was breeding plants. He was talking about, um, saving seeds and how they were, uh, at one point they were developing, they were, they were planting them in New Zealand. Yep. They were getting a crop and then shipping them to the United States. So they would be able to get, as they're developing these breeds, they would be able to get, um, uh, multiple cycles within a year by shipping the seeds back and forth. It was just right. absolutely Wasn't that fascinating? fascinating. Yeah. But it really, to be honest with you, it's one of those things that I've, you know, it is like anything you want to do it and then just yeah. never get around to it. And he just made seed saving seem so easy. Well, it is. It uh, is. I've ha- I have carrots growing the seed in my front yard and our carrot flower is an amazing flower. Uh, the ones that I have out in my front yard, the flowers are probably four inch diameter. And on that four inch diameter flower will probably be a thousand seeds. So it's super simple to save them. Mm-hmm. You know, when I let them dry on the plant, when it's dry, I cut it and I bring it in and turn it upside down in a bowl and scrunch it up and the seeds fall to the bottom and I pull out the chaff and you're it's done. done. And then at the same time, I'm also grabbing some of the, some of the flowers that are dried and just scattering them in the yard. Mm-hmm. I have cilantro. So I do have a lawn and I have a lawn because of the flood irrigation that we talked about earlier. And uh, I have a cilantro plant coming up in the middle of the lawn. Oh, nice. I have carrots coming up in the lawn. I have parsley coming up in the lawn. It's Again, that's just letting nature be. Nice. I guess I can't say that enough, huh? Right. No, I think think it's, I mean, I think it's one of those things that a lot of times, you know, coming at it from a homesteading perspective, we think we have to do all of these things. Where sometimes right. the best thing we can do is not do those things. Yeah, just let it be. Just let it be. And, and you know, you were talking about having cilantro come up in your in your um, uh, lawn there. So, mm-hmm. uh, a couple of years ago, this is this is long before I knew anything about um, a lot of the homesteady type things. It was long before I discovered any of the videos on YouTube. I just decided one day I was going to try mobile chickens. Um, I don't oh, remember good. where I had this, I had, I had come up with the idea, but I, I could run across plans for a hoop coop using cattle panels. Yep. And so I built two of these hoop coops and I way over-engineered them. Um, <laughs> that was problem number one. I yeah. thought, Oh, two by four bottoms. 
it would be much better if I used pressure treated two by sixes. Oh, now you've got something that's heavier than a dead preacher trying to yep. move it around was I struggled to move it. And at the time I was traveling quite a bit for, for my work, my wife, I'm not going to say how much she weighed. Cause you know, I don't want to get in trouble here, <laughs> but uh, she did weigh a whole heck of a lot. She couldn't move those suckers to, to save a life. Yeah. Well, that was mistake. Number one, mistake. Number two is I decided to try, you know, I saw on one of the hatcheries, I could get standard breed roosters really, really cheap. Right. I said, let me get standard breed roosters. Let me put them in these mobile coops and I'll move them around my yard. Now, again, I don't have a lot of yard. My yard that I had exposed at the time was probably maybe less than an acre, which if you're doing Cornish cross, maybe you can move them around Mm -hmm. there with standard breeds. You're just going to have to keep going over that same lane over and over and over again. And then, of course, there were times when I would be traveling, and so my wife couldn't move the coop, and so those birds would be in the same spot for four or five days, and they just absolutely moonscaped certain parts of my life. Exactly. That's right. And I was, you know, it's one of those things I I was, I've always kind of felt bad about that because I, well, I kind of destroyed my lawn until (laughs) last summer, I discovered something. And that is in one section of my lawn, Time is now growing. Uh huh. Right. I didn't plant it there. Right. But there it is. Yeah. It blew me away. Mm-hmm. I'm like, this is pretty awesome. That's what I'm talking about. Nurture the lazy gardener in you. And I, I well, I'm good at that. I mean, I'm right, right. now I'm rocking the Ruth Stout method because I'm like, it's all about the. Oh, the I saw that down. on your website, man. That's cool. And uh, just, yeah, so trying it out because I'm all about let's let's work smarter, not harder. Yeah, um, especially, with, especially with the food thing. Absolutely. And, yeah. you know, the fact is, again, going back to, you know, at, at the very beginning, what we were talking about, you can do this on small acreage. You don't yes. have to have uh, 5, 10, 15, 20 acres of land. You, you're doing it on a third of an acre. Yep. How, how much of your food do you think that you grow? Percentage-wise. Um, Probably 30% over the course of the year. 30% of your food. Yeah. So you're saving 30% on your grocery bill by, by, and really letting nature do a lot of the work for you. Exactly. And saving I, 30% on your grocery bill. Yeah. And I eat out of the yard every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, yesterday, my breakfast was, I went to the front yard. I got four big leaves of uh, kale, about eight big leaves of Swiss chard. Uh, and, uh, got eggs from the chicken coop Oh yeah. and I sauteed them. I, the, the butter and the mushrooms, I didn't grow on the property, but the eggs and the greens came mm. right off of the property. And I made myself, uh, and the, the interesting thing about the Swiss chard is that it's, it's got its own, uh, flavoring to it. So I don't have to do any herbs or any spices on it i just saute it up and eat it and it tastes amazing i probably ate i don't know six cups of vegetables yesterday Mm -hmm. just at breakfast Mm -hmm. and they're amazing right out of the yard Mm -hmm. yeah and that's the thing i I tell people all the time you know there is certainly a sense i think the food tastes better simply because you just there's that sense of satisfaction i harvested it myself there is that but there's another reason it's not all in my head 
No, absolutely not. So, so why, why does it taste better? Ah, so you ever heard of a Brix reading B R I X? I, I don't know as I have. Brix is something they use extensively in the winemaking industry. Okay. And it's the measure of nutrient density and sugar density in a piece of food. And the higher the bricks, the tastier it is. And here's the thing that people probably don't know. If they're harvesting something in uh, South America or Mexico and hauling it to the United States or China for that matter, we have a tremendous amount of food that comes from China. They're harvesting it when it's not ripe. Mm-hmm. There's several things that goes on when a, when a fruit or vegetable ripens on the plant. One of them is, is that there's something called a lectin. My permaculture teacher, Dan, calls it an anti-nutrient. Lectins are bad for you. Hmm. And plants, when they're not ripe, have more lectins in them. Okay. And as they ripen on the plant, the lectins go down and the nutritional value or the bricks goes up. So if you're harvesting something that you grew right when it's ripe and ready to be eaten, Mm-hmm. It is more nutrient dense and there's less lectins in it. But if something's being harvested 400, 800, 1,000, 1,500, 2,000 miles away, mm-hmm. it's being harvested before it's ripe. Mm-hmm. The thing about doing that is that the moment that it gets harvested, the lectins, that process of the lectins going away, that process stops. And the nutritional value that's there, which isn't very much on something that's not ripe, immediately starts to degrade. Wow. So there's a whole story process behind picking food right at the peak of ripeness and how much better it is for you. That's why. And, and you know, I, I, I've said many times on this podcast that, you know, we, we talk about kids not liking their vegetables. Mm, well there's there's a reason why their vegetables that we feed them taste like crap yeah you know and and i have friends that their kids that have grown up around gardens you know they'll go out and they'll they'll eat tomato straight out of the garden like it's candy they have to tell them to stop right you know when's the last time people had to tell their kids to stop eating (laughs) Eating vegetables right you know you don't eat but i mean i know this much um and and don't hold this against me. I know they're a hybrid, but sun gold tomatoes, those suckers are, they are sweet Mm -hmm. and they are like, I, last year was the first time I ever grew them. I I held off on growing them for a very, very long time. Part of it's because everybody grows them and I was just being stubborn. I grew them last year and I couldn't hardly get, I, cause my, when I drive in the driveway, I drive right by my garden. No, and nice. Me too. It's the best place for it. You get to see it when you drive home. Absolutely. And so as I'm driving by the garden, I could, I, I mean, I wouldn't hardly have the truck stopped. I'd be throwing it in park, door open, running for the garden to get a handful of those sun golds because <laughs> right. they tasted so good. Yeah. And, and I tell people, you know, to me, 
when you're standing in the garden mm-hmm. and you are eating a sun warmed tomato and that, that juice of that tomato is just dripping down your chin. Mm-hmm. There is no better tomato in all of tomato than that tomato right there. Right. Same and, for peaches. And, and now I'm glad that I have, I have scientific rationale to back up. Go. It's not just in my head. It is not. I'm, I, it, you know, it's not just that spice of the sense of satisfaction. Although I think that's something to, there's something to be said about that. Yeah. When you raise and grow food, I think you value it so much more. I yeah. think, um, again, there's that sense of satisfaction that you get when you, just like you, yeah, when you had your breakfast and you're looking at that, that plate and you're saying, man, out of the stuff that's on this plate, the only thing that I didn't have a hand in raising was the butter and the mushrooms. Right. And, and that, that's that great satisfaction. I don't think it's it ever huge. Goes it's huge. It doesn't. It doesn't. And what's even better. And I challenge people to do this, grow an entire meal in your yard. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it may not, you may, you know, it may not be the butter, but everything else, you know, what yeah. if, why not? Right. And the thing is, is uh, you, you, there, there's so many people that look at what they can't do. Oh, I can't have, I can't mm-hmm. have a cow. Well, if you can't have a cow, could you have goats? Yep. You know, I can't have chickens. Well, if you can have chickens, can you have quail? Can you have rabbits? Ducks. You know, what's that? Ducks. Ducks. Absolutely. Ducks make incredible eggs. Right. So, you know, instead of looking at what you can't do, what you can't have, look at what you can do and what you can't have. There's, there's a, a family that I, I actually, they posted in one of the homesteading groups and I, I wish I could find it again. They're actually out of Australia mm-hmm. and they claimed now I can't verify this, but they claimed that they had an 800 square foot backyard. And from that 800 square back square foot backyard, they were able to generate over 80% of their food. Wow. They were succession planning. They were vertical gardening. Mm-hmm. And then the abundance that they were generating, they were trading with other people to be able to get the stuff that they couldn't grow themselves. So maybe they couldn't grow, you know, raise chickens, but maybe they could trade somebody for eggs or, or whatever. Yeah. So now, again, I can't confirm that. They showed pictures of their pantry. I wasn't in their pantry. I, I didn't go to their house and verify it. But at the end of the day, I still think it's very possible for all oh, of us yeah. to do something. We may not grow 80% of our food, but we can, like you said, at least grow herbs. Right. Do something. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, thank you so much, Greg, for coming on. I just, I, I've enjoyed this. We could talk. Oh, we can talk for days. On and on. Because I think you're right about us being brothers from different mothers. You and I would have so much to talk about. I mean, we could I, I could talk with you for canning about canning for hours. Oh, absolutely. I, I you know, I learned how to can from in the middle of Phoenix. I planted a peach tree in 1974. And by 1978, I had so many peaches. I said to a friend of mine, oh, my God, I wish I knew how to can. He said, oh, my mom will teach you. So I learned how to can from Tim's mom. Nice. Right in the the city. So absolutely. Yeah, I do and, have and one other. Th- go ahead. Go ahead. No, you I go ahead. Have one other thing. Um, we do have a class called Seed Saving Hack. We talked a lot about um, a lot about uh, seeds today. SeedSavingHack.com. And people can go there and sign up for a free how to save seeds class. And one other thing, too, that I want to just bring up and again, you know, I, I, I want to be sensitive to your time, but 
you also have um, something that you do called seat ups. Oh um, yes. <laughs> and, and that's something else that I think is just so awesome where you are yeah. really encouraging people to, to, to grow these open. You're, 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 yeah. So, so tell me a little bit more about the seat up concept real quick. All right. Uh, so with, and we've talked a lot about seeds today without local seeds, you can't have local food. And I think the most important thing we can be doing right now is learning where our food comes from and figuring out how to grow our own. So we need to have a thriving seed economy in any big in any city. We need to have our own seeds. We need to be trading seeds. And so about eight years ago, Bill McDormand, Bell Starr, Kari Spencer, and I got together and we had a conversation. It's like, what if we put together a seed bazaar? And up until 2019, we rented a 10,000 square foot room at a local church and we put out 80 to 90 different varieties of open pollinated seeds in buckets and allowed people to come in on the honor system. They'd come in and they'd say, all right, I want a scoop of uh, of a basil. By the way, basil scoop is a teaspoon and it's six grams and it's 75 cents. So it's a screaming deal on seeds. Absolutely. We give classes all day. Uh, and by the way, we transitioned all of this online last year in 2020. So all of the Great American Seed Up is available online. And you can even buy your own Seed Up bundles. But it's really a, a concept des- designed to um, activate local seed savers in a local seed economy. My goal in doing this Great American Seed Up here in Phoenix was to get 10,000 families with seed banks in their freezers. Wow. And we're well on our way to that. And then, and with the, with the seed up in a box, you know, no matter where you are, we've shipped to Canada and all over the United States, no matter where you are, you can put together an amazing seed bank for, uh, I think they started 160 bucks. Wow. Um, Yeah. Anyways. Sorry. Alarm going off there. (laughs) (laughs) It's all right. It's all good. Well, that's that. Again, thank you very much for, for oh, joining me here. Where can people find more about what you're doing? Because I, I just I think what you're doing is so amazing. It's so incredible. Where can they find out more about you? All at urbanfarm.org. Uh, urbanfarm.org. Yep, we have over 600 episodes of the Urban Farm podcast there, and um, our courses. We've got courses there. We've got a blog. You know, there's there's so much information at urbanfarm.org. You'll you could easily spend years thumbing through it. Absolutely. One of my neighbors moved into the neighborhood recently, maybe a year and a half ago. And um, he figured out who I was and flipped out that I, he was living literally right across the street from me. And I saw him the other day. He says, Greg, I've made it through 400 of your podcasts. Now, you know, we've been on the phone for, you know, on this call for an hour now, right? Mm hmm. My podcasts are between 45 minutes, an hour and 15 minutes each. Mm-hmm. He has consumed three, four, 500 hours of podcasts. That took him a year and a half. So there's a there's lot of great there. information there for sure. You have some stellar, stellar guests on your podcast. Thank you. I just really have been enjoying it. And so, but oh, one more, th- one more, th- there's always one more thing with me. Okay, it's um, all good. Talking permaculture. I had the co-founder of Permaculture, David Holmgren, on my podcast in January of, la- of 2020. 
It was three episodes. It's an amazing set of episodes. If you're, if you do nothing else, if you're interested in permaculture, the co-founder of permaculture, David Holmgren on my podcast, it was amazing. That's great. I will go ahead and link to to those specific, those three um, episodes in the show notes, Mm -hmm. um, just because I I really, you know, that was the main topic for today was permaculture. We've kind of veered off on a few other things, but at the end of the day, it all comes back to it. It really does. What we're trying to do is we're trying to encourage people to raise and grow their own food wherever they're at and start today. That's really what it's all about. Exactly. today. Yep. Don't wait. Start today. Well, thanks again, Greg. I really, really appreciate it. And this has been so much fun. And uh, I look forward to having you again in the future. Great fun. Thank you for for doing what you're doing, man. It's, uh, It's important. Thank you. So folks, that is it for today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed that. I will have links to Greg's websites and podcasts in the show notes. So definitely check those out. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to me, Brian at the homesteadjourney.net. As always, the music on this episode was provided by audionautics.com. So a big shout out to them. And until next time, everybody keep up the good work.